Podcast One. Did you know that Amazon's Kindle was the result of a simple but incredibly powerful process called working backwards? In fact, Every idea that comes out of Amazon goes through this same process. And today, that process is revealed in detail by Jeff Bezos's shadow. Yes, his right-hand man. It's a straight-to-the-top episode 539 of the 12-year-old award-winning small business big marketing podcast. And welcome back to your weekly dose of Start With a Customer First Marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reid. You infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner and you are so ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire that it absolutely deserves to be. And that is exactly why this podcast exists. It exists for you. So if you love it, hit the subscribe button now and be the cool kid on the block who gets their episodes delivered first. As per usual team, there is marketing G-O-L-D, dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. So today's guest, Colin Breyer, joined Amazon in 1998 as a key player of their leadership team. He's <laughs> straight to the top. He then served as their vice president and for his final two years was chief of staff, a.k.a. Jeff's Shadow. That's what they called him in the hallowed halls of Amazon. Jeff's Shadow. Jeff being Jeff Bezos, right? You know, richest man in the world. Now, since leaving the world's most successful business, he's co-authored a book titled Working Backwards, which is pretty cool. It's the central principle Amazon has used since day one to guide the creation of every one of their ideas and products. In fact, the Kindle was the first product that resulted from the working backwards philosophy. So, like, this stuff works. So, pen and paper at the ready team as Colin shares a mountain of gold and then some. He even gives us some candid insights into his old boss. You'll never guess what car he drove until recently. (laughs) I was quite surprised. I started off by asking Colin what Amazon started out as and what it is today. Yeah, so Amazon started out as a bookseller and only in the U.S. And the the first time I had met Jeff, it was back in 1998, the way he pitched Amazon. He said, we want to build Earth's most customer-centric company and then be the place where you can find and discover anything you want to buy. So what is Amazon today? I still think it has a lot of the, it it wants to be Earth's most customer-centric company. That hasn't changed what has changed is you, it's not only just places that you can find and discover everything you want to buy. There's web services, it's a device maker, it's, uh, you know, makes movies. And so it, it's really has morphed into a bunch of other things. But one of the interesting things is that whole customer centric theme has allowed it to branch off into a bunch of different, uh, different areas that weren't even thought of at that time, quite honestly. Earth's most customer-centric company also sounds like uh, what Zappos are kind of positioned themselves at. In fact, Zappos have written that whole book about, what is it, creating happiness or something to that yes, effect? Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, similar philosophy? 
Well, similar philosophy on, on focusing on the customer have, you know, slightly different ways of, of going about doing it, but that, you know, there's not one way to build a customer centric company. And right. I think that is one of the reasons why Amazon was, had really pursued Zappos and wanted it to be part of that part of the family, but it operates, you know, relatively autonomously. Colin, amongst your roles at Amazon, uh, you were known as Jeff's shadow which sounds like a very ominous nickname. How, how did you become the right-hand man to the wealthiest and probably one of the smartest men in the world? Uh, and what did that involve, being his shadow? I had been running uh, the Amazon affiliate program and we were testing around launching some web services, just doing some tests with along with the affiliate program. I had been lucky enough for the year leading up to that, been working with Jeff on uh, different um, areas. And, you know, he just, he was familiar with what I was doing and, you know, how we were innovating and launching this new thing called web services, which is nothing that AWS is now. It was a different business at the time. It was taking Amazon's product catalog and exposing it to other people. And Andy Jassy, who was Jeff's previous shadow, that that's just what it's called internally, chief of staff or technical advisor. You know, it's 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 a one-off job, so it doesn't really have Does a Jeff formal title. Get my shadow. <laughs> he he was transitioning out, and I just I got a I actually had come home on a Friday evening, and I had got a call from uh, my manager saying, "Hey, can you come back in? I want to talk to you about something." So I don't live didn't live that far, so I just turned around and drove back, and he said, "Jeff." is looking for a new technical advisor and your name has come up and he'd like to talk to you. And so I went into his office and, you know, he asked me and I said, well, can I take the weekend to think about it? Which everyone told me I was crazy. You know, like, well, why didn't you do that? And, and so I had that, I spent a lot of time that weekend. I wanted to know what the role was, what success was, because it was too important of a role. If I didn't think I was the right person, I, you know, I, would be the first one to say, hey, you may want someone else at this time. And I talked to, you know, Andy, who had been in that role quite a bit. And I was lucky enough to know someone who was the chief of staff for another Fortune 10 CEO and a government official. And they gave me good advice. And so, I, you know, I went back in and had that conversation with Jeff on, on Monday. Things happened pretty quickly thereafter. And so, so I switched and so that role really entails, it's a couple of things. Before you explain what that role is, because I'm sure. very interested in knowing what Jeff's shadow does, um, yeah. and please lose all humility in answering this question, Colin, what did Jeff Bezos see in you to appoint you as his shadow? I never asked him that specifically. I was asking more about the role than, than me. But, you know, some of it was we were pioneering some of the web services technology, I you know, I, I think, and he had seen that that spirit of invention, and that was probably part of it. Another one is I came from a technology background. I was software development manager to start off there and then migrated more into general management. So I had a good understanding of how technology can help enable Amazon moving forward. And at that point in time, Jeff wanted to his, they call it the S team, his direct reports to become more technical. So he was looking for someone with a technical background in that role. And this is what I was saying earlier, it's a one-off role. So it kind of changes over time. And so I, I think I just had the right skill sets and I had some familiarity working with Jeff during that, you know, probably 12 months is when I was uh, working with him for uh, on a couple of other things. So that's my guess, but I, I was more focused on the role than me 
on that. So I was very fortunate to have been asked and, and honored. And, you know, I took it seriously every day. And no doubt. Um, what does being Jeff's shadow involve? Describe a typical day or week. Does that exist? Uh, well, <laughs> I can. So one is to just make sure he's being an effective CEO as possible. So part of it is a sounding board for some of his ideas. And it's not an operator role. I'm a builder at heart. And I realized that this was more an influencer role. And, you know, so making sure that the teams are meeting with Jeff, it's the right people, the right issues are coming out forth and then going out and working with teams before and after. But then the second part is longer term as what Jeff had said is I want to be able to uh, model each other. So you can model what I'm thinking about issues. And when, so when I go somewhere else in the company, that there's someone who he knows and trusts and, you know, has essentially gone through two years of training. So I joke around that that's my MBA is, you know, 2000 hours with, with Jeff for those two years. And um, so that was a longer term part of the role. You can't tell, obviously, whether that's been a success until you leave the role. You know, so a typical day, he worked at that time, probably around 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. was was when he was in. So I would get in before then and, uh, you know, stay a little after, you know, kind of bookending that. Wow. Um, and guys. I, you know, it kind of was a blur to be honest. It, it was, it was, it was fun, um, and uh, it was context switching. You know, it was you could look at a deep, go deep technical into one issue with a product team, and then turn around and talk about a marketing strategy, and then go talk about PR, and then a legal issue that came up. You know, and that would be all in one afternoon. And so I, you know, was impressed with how Jeff could context switch, but also bring in something that he learned from somewhere else to help solve another problem. And uh, it didn't feel that long, though. Colin, I'm, and by the way, we are here to talk about the working backwards principle, but I cannot avoid asking some questions about working with Jeff Bezos. So please g- g- allow me the indulgence. Um, sure. Because uh, there, there are things to be learned here. I'm sure Jeff had an executive assistant who managed his diary, but we have spoken a little bit on the show over the years about getting past the Dobermans to the person that you want to get that meeting with, that you want to talk to. Could you give us a tip? And I'm not asking how do we get to Jeff Bezos, but how do we get to someone like a Jeff Bezos in our life? How do we get that meeting? It's a good question. So first of all, it's not something I could can do is to say, here's how, here's how you can get to Jeff. I would first figure out who is the decision maker because a lot of times Jeff would say is I'm more of a switchboard operator. If something comes in, I'll look at it and I'm just going to connect it to the right person within the organization. So in a lot of cases, you're probably better off going to that other person because Jeff, he's not going to have the information to make the decision. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a waste of effort in terms of trying to get Jeff to pay attention on something, you know, unless it's, you've, it's big enough to warrant the, the CEO. So I would figure out who's the actual decision maker at the company or organization that I need to talk to. And then it's really convincing them, you know, you have to understand what their motivations are. That has, they have to have a vested interest to, to take that call rather than thinking I'm doing a favor 
Um, they're very busy. You know, people like that are very busy and their most valuable asset is how they use their time. Great answer. I, I These are great. I, I've had a previous guest, Steve Sims, on the show. Who, one of his clients is Elton John and we covered it in detail, but it's really nice to get your take on what is an ongoing challenge of, you know, getting in front of the right person as a business owner. What was his leadership style like, Colin? Jeff's leadership style, you know, the, you talk about the 14 Amazon leadership principles. He embodies them full stop. Customer obsession and invention and thinking long term, I would say, are the three attributes that I would, you know, put Jeff in terms of his leadership style and how he looks at a problem. He's concerned about what will Amazon look like five, seven, ten years from now, and that's what his focus is on. And if there there, there will be speed bumps along the way, but it's it's that long term thinking that gets you there. Invention, he refuses to you know, accept an outcome. And, and if you're boxed into something, it's how do you invent your way around it? I mean, he's, he's obviously uh, one of the, well, he is the smartest person I've, I've ever met. And I've been in rooms with other CEOs, politicians, professors, just off the chart smart, but he's actually quite humble about that. And and has the ability to really you know, invent and simplify it as one of Amazon's leadership principles. To talk about that simplify, that is often the hardest part of invention is to get at the core of what the issue is and then come up with a way to move forward. And you know, he has high standards. So he, <laughs> and and when they're not met, you do know, but hey, it, you know in a way like? that <laughs> well Sometimes they'll say the, the standards were not met in this case. We did not do our jobs, but it's it's not pounding on the table and and you know getting mad you know about why didn't revenue come in at, at you know for this quarter. He he will though be animated about what drives the business, which are the the customer experience, the input metrics we call them. So if you're a category manager of the electronics store, for instance, and you slipped in your pricing is is off versus your competitor. That's something that's 100% within your control. And that was a mistake that you made. You will hear about that. But, you know, he also, he moves and pivots then to, okay, so how can we solve that? You and Jeff and the rest of the senior management team are up in your mahogany offices. You know, I don't mean literally, but metaphorically. You talk about customer obsession. How does someone so high up with so many responsibilities and things to do, actually remain connected to the customer? So, I mean, one starts, so tomorrow is Thanksgiving in the US. And this was, it was 2003 or 2004, I can't remember which year. But in the fall, it was actually in early November, we had just launched our food and gourmet store, which, you know, it's not like the grocery store that Amazon has now. So you order food and gourmet items from third-party merchants and get it, Chipped. And so it was uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving is on a Thursday in the US. I got an email and he sent it out to the S team. And he had, uh, he said, all of our food for yesterday's Thanksgiving dinner came from our new, and it was a beta store at this point, the beta um, food and gourmet store. And you know, you know, so thanks team for doing this. And then here's a list of things I would fix and change. He also walks the store or he, when I worked with them, you could tell his um, CEOs typically when they go to retail, if they go to a city, they'll walk through their store Saturday and Sunday mornings, starting around 6 a.m., you could see these emails coming in. You know, he he knows 
most features as well as wow. the product managers who own those features. So you have to find ways to stay connected to knowing the customer experience. Some of it is just trying the, the different things, but another another way to do it is you have to instrument your, whatever systems that you have to give you those customer metrics and you can look at them and you look at them every day and you're in, immersed in them. Then you know when something's not right, six, 12 months later, when if you've been looking at a metric every day and you just see a little blip, it doesn't take a lot of time, but you have to get the right metrics to, to mm -hmm. look at to do that. So um, those are the two things, trying, but then also really, you know, I use the analogy of a coffee shop. If you're a single proprietary in a coffee shop, you know, if you're out of stock on this one thing, do people just turn around and leave or do they order something else on the menu item or if the store's too cold or the chairs aren't as comfortable? You have to recreate that in online business when you have so many layers, proxy layers between you and the customer experience. And you as a CEO or as a leader of the organization cannot compromise that. You have to figure out ways to get that information and to basically live and breathe it on a daily basis. So you can't be too busy to measure to the, customer the customer experience. Colin, is it urban myth or is it true that at Amazon board meetings, there is a vacant seat that represents the customer? I personally have never seen a uh, deliberate oh, empty chair set there. And, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not at every, it wasn't at every meeting, but, you know, it's, it's not a formal thing about here's a chair and this is, represents the customer. But I would say don't actually really need that. Be, just because of the way everyone lives and breathes the customer. It's in the DNA of the, of the brand. Yeah. Yeah, got it, got it. I said it's in the DNA of the brand. Last yes. question about the richest man in the world. What car does he drive? I don't know what kind of car he drives right now. He, uh, he was uh, he started out with the Honda uh, Accord, I believe. And, uh, Back in the day. And then um, it was uh, uh, Audi small SUV Audi when I was driving with them. So it was, you know, not, no exotic car, no fancy thing like that. So not ostentatious. Reality, yeah. Yes, Got not it. ostentatious. What are you most proud of, of your time at Amazon? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, you know, and I, I, this answer changed as I wrote the book. When I look back on um, what we were writing about the book, the book is really about how Amazon does it. And when I was working with Jeff, it was a very pivotal time. And so working with Jeff on how to develop some of these things about how do you get people to stop doing slides and writing narratives, the working backwards process was being developed right then too. And then, you know, we talk about breaking out into separable small teams. That all was happening. We were learning how to, um, how to be an invention machine type company. And uh, so I feel proud to have been involved with that. And, you know, as I talked about being a sounding board for Jeff, some of these ideas were downright crazy. And people, when we said we should go do it, thought, people thought it was crazy when we should not do slides at meetings. So I, I feel proud that I was part of helping Amazon build the infrastructure and the processes to launch all of these businesses afterwards. It, it's a little thing, but a big thing. You, you mentioned a couple of times, no slides at meetings. What you're saying is don't come into a meeting at Amazon with a PowerPoint deck and rely on that to get you through, right? Which is what we see so often in businesses all over the world. What did you do as someone who would used to come in with a deck? You just had to come in and, and talk? Sounds crazy. Well, Amazon meetings are, uh, for from an outside looking in or for a new hire, they do seem kind of bizarre at first. 
if it's a decision making issue or you're updating, you know, on a monthly business review, it's typically it's a six page narrative and the first 20 minutes of the meeting are silence and everyone just sits down and reads. So there'll be chit chat and like, okay, let's start the meeting and totally silent for about 20 minutes. And you, whether you're reading online and putting in comments or writing on, on a sheet of paper. And, you know, if you had a different lens or filter to measure a different spectrum, what you would see is a massive amount of information being transferred from that document over to the people in the meeting. And what that does, and it, even just the number of pixels in a, a written page compared to a, a PowerPoint slide with clip art, it's, <laughs> it's an order of magnitude different. But what that does is that transfers that information and it, it allows a richer discussion to happen for the second, you know, for the 40 minutes uh, of the rest of the meeting. And so you're, and it does two really great things. It allows you to be, have a, a much more in-depth discussion and make better decisions. And then the second thing is that a one hour meeting with slides and a one hour meeting with narratives is still an hour. But it, it, so you're, you have to spend that time anyway. But so for an executive who's time strapped, they get a much, much deeper understanding of all of their businesses by using this narrative method because they get so much more out of that hour than a presentation. I love that. Now, you've written a book called Working Backwards, which is Amazon's central guiding principle. And I love the idea of working backwards. Could you explain, first of all, what it is? And then I'd love you to take us through the process. Sure. Um, Working backwards, it's um, the name of the book, but it's also one of the, it's the process Amazon uses to vet and develop new ideas and products. And the central tenet of working backwards is you start with the customer experience and then you work backwards from that and and make your decisions. And the, the tool the primary tool Amazon uses is a press release and uh, frequently asked questions or FAQ. So the PR fact document. So if someone comes to Jeff or anyone says, hey, I've got a great idea. The response is, okay, well, go write a working backwards document and then we can go have a discussion around this idea. It pushes something back on the person or team that has the idea. The press release, it's a one page press release. Uh, you know, it's it's may or may not be the one that goes out if the product gets launched, but you have to have the elevator pitch or the one paragraph that cleanly describes what is what's in it for the customer. You have to talk to the customer with this press release, and then you can have a quote from a customer and or maybe a quote from the product manager who's ever leading that product. And then the second part is the FAQ, and it's usually there are two parts: an internal and external FAQ. The external FAQ would be things like, well, how much is this going to cost? Why is this product better than another alternative or another competitor product? What's in it for me? And the internal facts, the questions there are, how do we build this product for two, with a bill of materials of $200 or less? We don't have a sales force now, and we need a sales force to go distribute this product. Are we going to partner with someone or build our own sales force? You talk about those hard issues up front. Most ideas go through that process over and over and over and over again. So it takes several meetings until the team feels they have a deep understanding of the customer problem they're trying to solve, and they know what are the tough issues ahead, and that's when it gets greenlit. 
And uh, so that is the working backwards process in, in, in a nutshell. So, okay, let's dig a bit deeper on that. The, the press release. Now, I didn't have the luxury of reading your book because it's not out for a couple of months. Uh, however, I did do some sniffing around that wonderful thing called the internet and yeah. I found a, an Amazon employee who outlined the press release, the, the kind of key subject headlines that you need to answer. I'm going to put these in the show notes to this episode, but just tell me if I'm on the right path here, Colin. A heading, name the product in a way your target customers will understand. A subheading, describe who the market for the product is and what benefit they get. Because this is a press release you're writing for someone who's going to use it about a product that doesn't exist just yet. It's an idea, right? Yep. Um, Summary, summarize the product and key benefit. Problem, describe the problem your product solves. Solution, describe how your product elegantly solves the problem. Add a quote from you or a quote from a spokesperson about the product. How to get started with the product, a customer quote, and then a closing and a call to action. Is that kind of what that one page press release that, looks like? It, yeah, and it, it has to be one page. And so the hard hard work is trying to encapsulate that into one page and then be able to crisply state that to where it if it could be a press an actual press release. Well, the obvious answer to getting it to one page, you've got a lot to say, is doing it in like three point. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> really? I thought that was quite innovative. Once you have nailed that press release, what happens? Isn't that the start of the working backwards process? Do you then go, okay, this product is a goer. This is a great idea. What now? Well, so it is a working document. So it's the press release and the facts. So, you know, as you uncover different issues, you'll add some more frequently asked questions to it. Or if, if you just you discover something, a change in the marketplace, or you know, we actually think we're solving a slightly different problem, which you will do, learn along the way. So even once the project is greenlit, you still keep that up to date. And the nice thing about that is everyone on the team has that, and so everyone knows exactly what is the problem we're trying to solve, how are we going to solve it, and what are the unsolved problems that we need to go tackle. With with uh, the Kindle, it was one of the first products that went through this, and oh wow, it wasn't even a Kindle at that point. It was an idea about digital books, and what happened in that we weren't using the working backwards process in the beginning of the Kindle because it didn't exist. But we started experimenting with writing press releases and facts. But what came out is well, what is really important for whatever this um, ebook experience is. And it has to be an always connected device, which seems normal now, but it wasn't before. You actually had to tether devices to a computer and download your book. The only thing that was connected was a phone um, and then a BlackBerry. It had to have a, a reader. Well, the, the the customer experience was they had to melt away and, and you, you know the reader gets lost in the reading experience. So what you can't do that with typical screens, which have lights that are, you know, a million small pixel lights shining in your eyes. So we realized we needed a different type of display device, which was the e-ink that one in the Kindle. And, you know, massive selection publishers and weren't doing digital books because it wasn't that big of a market. So we had to go create that. So there were several things that we knew we didn't know how to solve at the, that point in time, but we knew wouldn't go launch until we had like these were the deal breakers and it you know the kindle it took it was a several year development process but it, it kept the team focused on what was important for the customer and how how can we solve those hey 
Hey, if my chat with Working Backwards author Colin Breyer is inspiring you to create some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours, then grab a copy of my popular marketing text, The Boomerang Effect, that'll show you how being helpful in your marketing returns you more customers and makes you more money. Ka-ching! You can grab a copy over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Now, back to Colin. Is the Working Backwards process, Colin, most ideal for what? For new products from scratch? For a new product feature? For a product that already exists? Can you use it for service-based ideas? Where does it shine? So the honest answer is it works in all of those cases. So, you know, the HR group at Amazon, if they want to launch a new health plan for internal employees, so it's not even going to be released, you know, they'll say, They'll write a press release, you know, a mythical press release, and say, "Why, you know, why are we moving to this new health plan?" Small features on the website go through this just as much as should we get into devices and make the, you know, an Echo and, and, and Alexa devices. So it, it it's a simple, lightweight process. It's a sign of a good process is it's easy to learn. A lot of people can adopt. You can teach it, so it's a teachable skill, and then it's flexible in a number of different areas. It does get better the more you use it because you have good examples of here's a great um, working backwards document or process, and then everyone can see, oh, this is what success looks like. Even if the product doesn't launch, some you know most of the the ideas that go through this process do not see the light of day, but that doesn't mean that it was a failure. It's designed to weed out the ideas that probably aren't either aren't big enough or aren't necessarily bad ideas, but just not the right thing to work on right now because there are other priorities to, to, to work on. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, it, just because it doesn't, it, maybe what, 5% of ideas that go through the working backwards process actually find their way to market? Would that be a fair uh, You know, I, <laughs> it'd be interesting to do that. But yeah, the majority of ideas that go through that do not make it out to market. And what you're really doing, you, another thing you're doing here is you're conserving your bottleneck resources, which are in a lot of companies are technical um, software development resources because you're not building the wrong thing. You're you're spending the upfront time, and it's you know these iterations can happen pretty quickly. Uh, you know, ver- version one, two, three, four of the working backwards document because you haven't then as you build software, it gets t- more expensive to change the more you build. So you know before you can that's what I meant about greenlighting before you actually start using some of your precious software development resources, you have to have this fully uh, defined. It sounds like a very creative and innovative business to work, does Amazon. Um, I know Google, I think, give their employees one day a week or half day a week to just go off and blue sky think about an idea that could add value to the Google business. And, you know, from my point of view, with small business owners who are a majority of my listening audience, we're all so busy that we don't really get time to think. Um, you know, we'll work, the old cliche of working in, not on the business. How did Amazon encourage this kind of creative thinking? Were you given time to do it? Part of having uh, a spirit of invention means that people are just curious. They want to learn. And I, what's nice about the working backwards process is it pushes something back on the idea generator. Because, you know, I, you can say, hey, I've got this great idea. And if it's not well thought through, it may sound great. But once you actually uncover all the details, you realize, oh, it wasn't as good as I thought for those reasons. But um, if people are encouraged, if you have an idea on on another area, you know, write a press release and a fact, and that's how a lot of products get started. So 
you, you can make time to, to go do this. And, um, mm. you know, so the, the, the one day a week, um, I'm not sure how often that actually happens and I'm not an expert in, in Google processes. I personally find it difficult to say, okay, now's my invention time. So yeah. I'm going to take off my operating time and now I'm an inventor. And just because I'm outside and it's a nice day, these ideas are going to pop into my head. I don't work that way. Maybe some people do, but I think that where you get these ideas is really from a deep understanding of the customer experience and figuring out, well, where are their pain points and how can I go solve them? And, you know, these innovations may be little innovations, but if you if you can have a company where you distribute that and those ideas just keep bubbling up, you know, from all over the organization, that is often just as powerful as coming up with the next big uh, idea. Um, so I, I think that this way, it do, Amazon does encourage people to go come up with invention ideas and, and use this process. Colin, you talk a lot at Amazon about obsessing over the customer. Is there any obsession over the competitor? You pay attention to competitors, and you know, for uh, like, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, pricing is very important in the retail business. You have to know what your competitor is. They're, they're selling certain items for. So there's a whole competitive intelligence group. To, to give feedback. And again, that's a, a customer experience metric. You know, our customers, we, we assume uh, at Amazon, you, you assume that customers have perfect information. It's nice to act that way up front. And so if they do, you have to get that same information and lower your prices. The other thing is you can look at a, what a competitor is doing and be inspired by it. I think copying what they're doing and Generally, it's difficult, especially in the business Amazon's doing, because by the time you copy it, they're already on version two or three. Mm. So, But you can say, this is a good idea. How can we take this idea and put our own spin on it? You know, forget Amazon, just whatever company you're in. Because if you purport to be the Amazon of X or the Google of Y or the Zappos of Z, they're probably going to get there. They just haven't gotten around to it yeah, yet. Yeah. So, you know, if you have this idea, great idea, you say, well, what can we uniquely add and, and, and put a spin on this idea to really help our customers who we know more better than anyone else. Yeah, I get it. I get it. One of the things Jeff saw in you when he hired you as his shadow was, I think you said earlier, how can we better use tech? He, he liked the way you use tech in the business and to grow your side of the business. A lot of small business owners these days are still maybe a little bit freaked out by technology. It's not going away. There's a new bright, shiny object every other day taking our focus off what we should be doing in our business. Do you have a view, and it's a general question, but do you have a view on how business owners can better use technology to grow? Yes. So one thing for you know, a small business owner or any business owner, technology changes pretty quickly. So I would ask the question, what's not going to change three or five years from now versus which technology is going to be the best one. And then how can you use technology to focus on what I know is not going to change and improve that in my business. So you use it in the right way. A company that is purely started, even if it's a small business on a single technology, you're all in on that technology already. And that that's a challenging place to be unless you're you firmly know that that's not going to change. The, the, the second thing I would look at doing is how you use technology and how you build is actually very important. You want to keep it as separable as possible. And there's a trap you can fall into about, you know, putting a lot of hacks for quick tests. But if you keep doing that over and over again, then it gets really hard to, to be nimble that technology actually is slowing you down than, than speeding you up. So, 
how you can separate teams and technology is actually very important because you want to maintain that speed as you grow, as you know, as your business idea take gains traction. You you want to go faster, not slower, and you don't want that technology to slow you down. Now, speaking of technology, and I have another urban, maybe it's an urban myth, maybe it's real, but one of the things I've read about Amazon is that they are going to do, I guess it's not happening yet, but deliveries by drone. Now, is that true? I would not, let me put this, I would not be surprised to see drone deliveries. Um, How does that even Amazon work? And other, other companies. Are we well, going to look up at the sky and see like a thousand drones flying over the city of Seattle dropping off little parcels in driveways? I think one of the things Amazon does well is they take complex problems, you know, they hide complexity. So if drones, if drones are the best way to get goods to customers in certain areas fast, that is a complex problem, but that's kind of what Amazon and companies do. They solve, they make complex, get rid of mm-hmm. the complexity for customers and just make it work. So it's not that, you know, drones are technology, but they're using drones to cut down on delivery time to make it that, you know, their cost structure lower if, you know, it lower the cost structure of delivery so you can in turn lower prices. So if it's going to help the customer experience, Amazon's going to do drone delivery um, eventually. What was the most amazing idea that you came across in your time at Amazon that, that may be not even to market yet where you've gone, wow, really? Is that going to happen in my lifetime? I would say that, uh, Amazon has some long-term thinking, but really the the tactical of how you get there, it is a quarterly and yearly horizon. There aren't many, and certainly you don't spend a lot of time at Amazon on a five-year or 10-year plan and projections. There are just so many things that can go wrong and that you don't know that will change. Amazon puts focus on how can we be better next week than we were this week? Where do we allocate our resources for the next three to 15 months. And so how do we move forward with that? So I'm going to have to take, like nothing jumps out to say that when we saw this idea to say 10 years from now or five years from now, this is going to be fantastic. A a, a question for you, but you also might've heard Jeff answer it, but boy, someone coming from Amazon, um, is bricks and mortar retail dead in your mind or what role does it play going forward? I don't think it's it's dead, and I, you know the probably the current percentage of retail it's it's fifteen to twenty percent online, eighty percent offline. So it's not dead. There are some things that are are not going uh, away. I think that there are certain categories and certain use cases and customer scenarios where online does make more sense. But you know, Amazon is also moving into physical retail. So I, I, there is a time and a place where you want to go and either check out a product or, you know, hold it with your hands or, or you know, get to, to have the in-store customer experience. I don't think it's going away by any means. And if anything, I think that the companies that will be successful will figure out how to merge those two so you get the benefits of both. Well, there's a great ex- those examples. I think it was a, a South Korean subway station where there was a whole a wall of photos of different food items that you took a photo of and then dropped past the supermarket on the way out to pick them yep. up. Um, I think there's a shoe shop in, in Melbourne, Australia, where again, you literally go and, and view the product. You can't buy the product. You have to then order it online. So maybe the way bricks and mortar retail is used 
uh, will be different going forward. What what bricks and mortar retail is Amazon getting into out of interest? Because it's not happening over here. So there are, well, Amazon bought Whole Foods, first of oh, all. I think yes. it was about a $13.7 billion. Don't quote <laughs> I could be off by a couple hundred million, but uh, um, purchase of, of, of Whole Foods. It, they also have Amazon uh, bookstores where it's not, now it's not just books. It's featuring the Alexa and Echo devices. And then there's the Amazon Go store, which is a cashierless type of store where you you scan your phone when you walk in and there's no cashier. It looks at their cameras all over that look at what you're taking in, in the cart and you get charged on your way out. So they're experimenting with a couple of, of different ways. Uh, you know, it still is in the early days on how you use some of this technology to improve the, the online and offline experience and how you can uh, make them work together. Uh, you've left Amazon now. You had some time running uh, Red, help me here, in uh, Red Marts, Red an online grocer in, in Singapore, yes. Okay, that got swept up and bought because of your genius. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Then. <laughs> so you've now written Working Backwards, which I really look forward to reading. I mean, unfortunately, again, it wasn't out at the time of this interview, but uh, a fantastic philosophy that you've covered in the book. Are you then hoping that the conference circuit comes back at some point so that you – is your plan to be a, you know – the go-to keynote speaker for all things Amazon, or what's your future look like? The reason why my colleague Bill and I wrote the the book is, you know, Amazon scaling and doing something big is in your DNA. Working with companies one-off, they're not that many days in the year to, to have a big impact. So the book was the first thing to really codify the kind of the secret sauce of Amazon. And then we'd like to figure out ways to work with companies to help them help them do it. I, I do believe that Amazon has fundamentally created a way to build organizations that works. You know, it's been proven to work with digital delivery of goods, business to business service with AWS, online e-commerce, manufacturing and selling devices. So it's it's already proven. And then it's proven to work in small and, and large organizations too. Most of these processes were started either when Amazon was relatively small compared to what it is now, or they were started with a few groups within Amazon that were that were small. So that, you know, the thing that we want to debunk the myth is that, well, this only works if you're a multi-billion dollar conglomerate, because I think that this can help small companies operate in, in what we think is just a, a different way than most companies are used to and what we think can, it can get you where you're going faster. So mm-hmm. long-term thinking doesn't usually... At Amazon, it doesn't mean that it takes longer to get to your end goal. And the Amazon, I think, was the fastest company to $10 billion and $100 billion. And Amazon was actually, well, now they're the second fastest if you count AWS. AWS, which is a division within Amazon, Amazon got to $10 Web billion. Dollars. Amazon Web Services got to $10 billion faster than Amazon.com, the company. So, you know, long-term thinking doesn't mean... Just relax and, and 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 you know be patient. You can be long-term thinking and move very fast. Is it true that Amazon Web Services? You just said it's the second fastest growing company within Amazon. Within Amazon, is that right? Or the first company to get to ten billion dollar turnover? Amazon Web Services got to a ten billion dollar turnover faster than Amazon, the company that started in nineteen ninety five. By the time yeah, it right. got to ten billion dollars, and, and am so. I right? be another urban myth. I, I obviously hear a lot of urban myths, uh, Colin, but Amazon Web Services came about because you had a whole lot of unused space on your services that you could then sell to 
other businesses to use to host? No, no, I mean, that, that's a myth. One simple way to debunk that myth is at Amazon, we needed it back during the holiday season. So if you rented it out to companies for the <laughs> to first three quarters, you can't take it back for a quarter. So it, it, it wasn't that. It was just that Amazon realized there was a new way to build software using what's now known as cloud computing and that mm. our own software development groups within Amazon were starting to adopt that. And sometimes you realize, hey, some of these internal tools that we're building on our own, we should start exposing them to other people. Yeah, got it. Colin, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for debunking the urban myths that I did throw at you. Uh, clearly, <laughs> clearly, I shouldn't listen to them going forward. And thank you for sharing the working backwards philosophy because I, I actually know know for sure that it's going to help a lot of business owners that are, are struggling to bring ideas to market or to filter out the ideas that shouldn't go to market. So I look forward to uh, reading the book and for everyone else listening, that book will be available on in all good bookstores, including Amazon and those in your local high street as well. Working Backwards is what it's called. Colin, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed this. Well, there you go, team. X Shadow to Jeff Bezos and the author of Working Backwards, Colin Breyer. What an interesting fellow with a beautifully simple process. Here's my top three attention grabbers from that chat with Colin. Attention grabber number one. I love, love, love Amazon's approach to starting with a customer and working backwards. Like it seems very obvious, but not enough business owners do it, I don't think. I hope you can start doing it now. And if you do, let me know. Let me know the outcome. I'm sure it'd be a very good one. Attention grabber number two. I love how the working backwards approach starts with the owner of the idea writing an internal press release that announces the finished product that is yet to exist. Now you'll find a full outline of how to write that press release over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 539. I'll put it all there for you. And attention grabber number three. I love the idea of hiding complexity. Amazon has always been at the forefront of this type of thinking. In fact, Jeff Bezos himself wrote a book back in 2012 called One Click. I suggest you read that along with Working Backwards. That's what grabbed my attention. I would love to know what grabbed yours. Hit pause and tell me by calling the Small Business Big Marketing hotline on 0480 015 Five zero, just like Janine did. Oh my gosh, Tim Reed, it's Janine Coyle here, a photographer in Perth. You cannot believe this. I was listening to your podcast with Alabashay's CEO Pippa the other day, and when she mentioned Alabashay sponsoring the first Iron Woman series, I was the only photographer. Alan Coates rung to shoot the front cover for Australasian World Ironman magazine of Carla Gilbert winning that first series at Broad Beach Surface Paradise in 1993. How amazing is that? Oh, my God. It's Janine Coyle, photographer. I'm still clicking after 30 years in the Swan Valley, Perth, WA. And P.S., Charles from Maxaras Midland referred me to listen to your podcast and I'm loving them. I'm listening to them every minute I get. You've got so much fabulous information. Thank you for sharing. Ciao, ciao. 
Janine, thank you so much. I love the fact that you're listening to my podcast every minute you get. I hope you get a lot of minutes. That Ella Bache interview, I, I enjoyed speaking to her so much. There was so much gold in there. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, for that to, for anyone who missed it. And Janine, thank you for calling. Everyone else, you can give me a buzz on the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline on 0480-015-150. Next episode, we catch up with neuromarketer Professor Prince Gooman, who has just launched a book called Blindsight, which is all about the way marketing works to reshape the brains of unsuspecting consumers. A little controversial, yes, but i got to tell you, bloody interesting. Prince explains why watch ads show 10 past 10 as the time, always, why McDonald's logo and Hungry Jack's logo is red and yellow, and he explains why certain stores appear to always be having a sale. You are about to enter the world of neuromarketing in the next episode, and it's a little bit scary. Hey, speaking of marketing manipulation, be sure to grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. If you're loving the Small Business Big Marketing podcast, you'll find 538 other episodes on the Podcast One Australia app. Download that, subscribe to my show. And as has been the case for the past 12 years, 12 long, long years, the podcast is presented by me, Timbo Reed, and piece by piece nailed together by the 80s music tragics over at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, team, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now.